Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to our weekly Women Today podcast. On the programme this week, we've had a visit from the doctor, welcomed Mary Poppins, learned some Manx and found out how glorious it is to be a geek. But first, our final guest this week was Charles Gard. No stranger to Manx Radio, Charles recently retired from his post at Culture Vannin after 25 years promoting and preserving Manx culture. But considering his seemingly endless list of talents, it doesn't look like he'll be resting on his retirement laurels anytime soon. However, our guest today is a musician, a broadcaster, a filmmaker, a recording engineer, a producer, an editor, a public speaker and has pioneered the communication of Manx culture and history to the wider public. Charles Gard, that's a ridiculous CV. <laughs> yes, I also make my own shirts, if that's of any interest. <laughs> I don't believe you for a second, but thank you for joining us. It's great to <laughs> have you to on the here. show today. Pleasure to be here. Now, we talked about preserving Manx culture, and there was something recently um, that I saw in an article about you, and, and uh, I think somebody was saying, oh, it's fantastic what he's done for the Isle of Man, and he's been, over the years, finding out what it means to be Manx. What does it mean to be Manx, Charles? Oh, that's... <laughs> That's one of the big questions, isn't it? You could define it in any way. For me, it's just being born here and my body is made up of the elements of the Isle of Man. So I think think of the Isle of Man through everything. I see the world from the vantage point of the middle of the Irish Sea. And um, how else could you describe it? Being Manx. I love that. What does the world look like from here, do you think? Uh actually looks quite a frightening place some of the time, especially if it's filtered through modern media. And I think you're going to be talking later about going away. However much I love going away and seeing places, the fact that I know I can come back to Onken um, <laughs> is what keeps me going, I think. A little bit of a homebody then. Absolutely. <laughs> which is good to know. Now, after almost a quarter of a century with the Manx Heritage Foundation, which is now, of course, Culture Vannin, mm-hmm. You've retired, Charles. Yes, um, under duress. Uh, apparently, however uh, useful you might be, whatever skills you might have honed, when you get to 65, you're too old to function anymore. And under government rules, they say, will you stop doing that and go away? Oh, that's That awful. is retirement, I know. Something I know. tells me, though, you're not really going to stop getting involved in all these things, are you? Well, no, I I love making films and doing all the things I'm doing, so I'll be carrying on doing that, but somewhere else where they actually want me to do it. Mm. So do you feel that you're leaving the preservation of the Manx culture in good hands? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, there's a lot of people working on that. It's not just the preservation, it's the reformulating it into something useful today as well. It's all very well looking to the past, but you have to look to the future. And what we do today as culture becomes tomorrow's heritage. But it's very important. Stephen Hawking was talking on one of his lectures the other day and he said, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know who you are. And I thought that's beautifully put. At a basic level, we all like to know who our parents are, but culturally and in society, we've also got to know about the past to inform the future. So it's an ongoing thing. That's very interesting because, in fact, um, the Island Band documentary uh, that I was involved with last year, we went to uh, the Museum of Appalachia in Tennessee, uh, very sort of Celtic roots there as well. And there was one chap who was sat on a porch in this cabin in the middle of the Appalachian mountains and he said almost an identical sentence if mm. you don't know where you're from you don't know who you are exactly so it's yes. interesting how that sort of spread across the, the, the board there now you mentioned the films you've been making films about the isle of man for many years now and th- there can't be many places that you've not been to or documented on film and i just wonder having been to so many parts of the island is the one particular place that you always like to return to that you feel most safe in Uh, Well, actually, the Northern Plain has become one of my favourite places. Anywhere north of Ramsey, I love the point of air, I love the beaches, I love, well, the history that's up there, the coastal erosion, uh, getting lost in the curraghs on a bicycle, peering over all these little hidden houses and farms. Tripping over wallabies. Tripping over wallabies, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's... um, I, th- I think it's a wonderful place, but every part of the island, uh, you know, it's a microcosm of the whole of Britain, really. We've got great cliffs and mountains, wonderful beaches, shady glens. We've got everything here. It's extraordinary. What was it like seeing it all from the air when you made that film? Oh, well, that was just amazing. Being up in a helicopter uh, and, you know, being in charge. I wasn't flying it, but I could say, let's swoop down here, let's go there. The thing that struck me were the colours. On a sunny day, uh, being over Derby Haven Bay, for example, 
the deep colours in the sea and the land in the summer are really astonishing. You don't appreciate them from the ground as much as you can from up there. I think that's very true. Anyone that's seen that film, the perspective that it gives you on this island, mm. at one point it makes you feel really tiny and at another point it makes you feel that you're, like you're part of something very special, doesn't it? That's right, it, it does. Yeah. For many years, obviously, you've been intent on preserving and publishing and promoting Manx culture, as we mentioned earlier on in the show. Why? Because... It's all about human beings and all of Manx history, all of anybody's history, is about people. And people do the most outrageous things, they say the most outrageous things, they get uh, into quarrels with each other, they sadly go to war. But the human stories in all of these are, are what have really interested me because we've had some extraordinary characters on the Isle of Man, especially at a time in the early um, 19th century when we were a haven for debtors and murderers. I mean, the sort of people that were coming over here would make your hair stand on end. Extraordinary. And I found that fascinating. And there's a lot of resonances between that and today. Because until, you know, the 80s, we were still of a dubious nature, some of the dealings that we had, uh, hence the savings and investment bank collapsing. And we've cleaned our act up uh, very much more now. So, again, the Isle of Man has to fall back on its ingenuity and find another way of making money. OK, if you were in charge of that, what would you suggest we look to? Can I just say, thank God I'm not in charge of that. <laughs> because a politician, especially over here, gets no credit for anything they do. And the majority of them are working very hard. And it's an awful business, this uh, taking away the VAT agreement so suddenly and trying to replace it with something that sustains all our lives. And if you're a senior politician here, it's for real. It's our lives, our uh, infrastructure, you know, our hospital care, everything has to be to be made to work. We do, though, have amazing reserves. I think we've got £1.6 billion at the moment, which is a phenomenal amount, mm. given when the SIB collapsed in 1981, we had £1 million. That was all the government had as reserves. So, in that sense, the Isle of Man is a huge success so story. It's just that it's now being hit with the, the promenade and the state of the roads and so many other problems are coming forward but the government are looking at absolutely everything to try and make money. And there's a downside to that because the organisation I've just left and the Arts Council and others now have to justify any grants they give in terms of culture, in terms of its monetary value. Which isn't always relevant, to be well, fair, Well, it's not it? relevant at all. Once you monetize culture like that, you're then saying, well... You know, that's a wonderful thing, but we're not going to do it because it doesn't bring any money back in. It's the wrong reason to be doing it. And I think in a society, the government do have to support arts and culture. Uh, I think we're all really annoyed in a way about how much sport gets. I mean, sport mm -hmm. is a great thing, I know, but culture involves many more people than sport does because culture includes the music you listen to, the design on the magazines, the design of your clothes, your films. If you said to someone, OK, you're not going to have any culture for a week, that means you can't listen to any music at all, you can't watch TV, can't you can't go to book. the cinema, you can't read a book, yeah. then how many people would that involve? The entire population. Because all the people producing that, as you well know, are musicians, graphic designers, scriptwriters, camera people... Culture and art permeates everything, and sport doesn't. <laughs> we'll probably have some texts about that now. <laughs> but speaking of culture, now we, obviously we talked about Max Heritage Foundation and Culture Vannon as well. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, you've, you've now retired from that situation. But I'm just wondering if you can think back, what are some of the projects and success stories that you've been involved with that you're most proud of? Well, it's been a wonderful career because everything I've done, I've loved doing. Mm -hmm. And not many people can say that about their jobs after being at the Royal College of Music and living in Ireland for four years, I came back to the Isle of Man and started here at Manx Radio in charge of religious programming, <laughs> of all the unlikely things. Um, I mean, I was one of the founding people that started Mandate here, which is still going, which I think was very much needed, a, mm -hmm. a proper current affairs programme to hold politicians to account. And, of course, with the Heritage Foundation, um, I've been involved in publishing over 30 books on every subject to do with the Isle of Man, making lots of videos, supporting uh, CDs and, um, of course, other groups. People have published books, have got grants from us, uh, filmmakers, musicians. It's been a real boost to Manx culture. And I think the fact that we do have so many 
good Manx musicians around now and such a big flourishing of publications is largely due to the Heritage Foundation and Mm. the staff down there. In in that same light then, is there anything you can think about that... um, maybe sound about reflecting on that has been lost over the years because I know part of what you've done is try to preserve certain things and obviously promote certain things but is there anything that's gone that you're sad about? Yes I'm very sad about a good number of buildings that have gone Mm. um, important buildings Uh, the whole of that is a scandal it's a scandal and I'll say that now we don't have a conservation officer anymore we don't have a conservation grant where if you did have a registered building you could apply for small amounts of money to keep it going And this is outrageous. So many important buildings now are under threat. A lot of them are owned by the government. And, of course, the government wants to sell everything it can to realise the value of it. But there's just one or two buildings, I've said this before, that they shouldn't sell. They need to be preserved. And they're part of our identity, what we were saying earlier. If you don't know where you come from, in other words, if you just demolish everything you don't need, you'll think, well, what was there? This is going to be no different from Morecambe. We do need to keep our identity. We do. And what's what attracting people over here? Mm. Because we're different. And if if we're not different, then they won't come. You mentioned buildings, and obviously you've made films about buildings as well, and you've been into some very interesting places when you've been making these films. Is there anything that stands out to you as being one of those absolutely fascinating places on the island that really has resonated with you? Yeah, that's the great thing, as you know, about being a cameraman. You get to Mm -hmm. go to places that no one... It's a great privilege. I think the bank... The bank vault in Bridge House in Castletown, built in the 1790s, with all these extraordinary counterweights and ropes and buckets that can only be opened by putting a cannonball in a hole in the room above. <laughs> and it goes down all these slots and it opens a mechanism below. That's one of the most extraordinary things anywhere in Europe. And it is privately owned. Sadly, it's not open to the public, but it is on the video. And seeing that was really quite extraordinary. But, you know, I like going down the mines or sewers or into lighthouses. Wherever I can get, I'll go and film it. I love that. I like going into the sewers. That'll be the one quote that I remember for today. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Not too often, but... Geek Girl is Harriet Manners. She is a 15 stroke 16, depending on where you are in the series. Um, school girl who is very geeky, not very popular, um, struggles with uh, bullies at school. And she is spotted by a modelling agency on a school trip and decides that this is a chance to transform her life. But it's not necessarily as uh, smooth as she thinks. <laughs> now, I was going to ask where she came from, but to be honest, it sounds like it might be very similar to what happened in your life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not an autobiography, but it is very much loosely based on an experience of, of me being a very geeky school good who was spotted by a modeling agency completely unexpectedly um so yeah i used that kind of experience to kind of build the build the story what was it like being a model because it was 15 wasn't it when you were spotted what was it like at that age oh i was just 15 i'd had my 15th birthday two days before so i was really really young and very very shy and insecure um it was bewildering to be honest and i i'm constantly waited for someone to drag me out of the industry and tell me that it had been a huge mistake so um yeah and it was crazy it was it was bewildering on a daily basis so yeah a lot of it was an adventure let's put it that way <laughs> uh, and i suppose is it safe to say that it might not be the most appropriate place for a 15 year old it depends what kind of 15 year old you are to be honest i think if you're very grounded i think that it can be a lot of fun i think if you are maybe less secure or maybe more vulnerable then it can be quite a scary place so you know i think it really depends on the particular teenager we're talking about i love that in your bio it says that you spent uh, two years falling over catwalks going bright red and breaking things you couldn't afford to replace is that true yeah i was a mess i was a mess harriet's a lot better at it than i am over the series she gets she improves um i stayed pretty bad um i only had one facial expression um so i was not particularly versatile <laughs> um and i i did tend to get like i did fall downstairs a lot and you know get caught up in changing room curtains and you know it was a bit of a mess to be honest <laughs> but makes some great stories for the kids later <laughs> exactly exactly i mean that's the you know my my ridiculous clumsiness is, has been a source of great comedy so um i try and try and make the most of it so you mentioned it's a source of comedy. Is the the series uh, Geek Girl, is it meant to just sort of entertain or is there inherent message behind it for the readers? No, I mean, I think it is. I mean, it's comedy, but it's I think that with comedy, you can you can do a lot more or just as much as you can with the serious series. So, you know, yes, it's done with a sense of humour. Um, Harriet's very dry. She's got a very sort of sarcastic and ironic sense of humour. But she is dealing with everything that, that teenagers deal with. She deals with, you know, bullying at school. She deals with identity. She deals with 
friendship and, you know, the kind of negotiations that go on at that age. You know, am I going to lose a friend? Am I having a fight with a friend? Love, first love, um, family, working out, you know, at that age, what, how much you love your family, but also how much you want to have independence from your family. So all the things that you would normally deal with at that age, she goes through. And it's just that I'm doing it with a sense of humour as opposed to doing it um, seriously. Now, all those issues, they're quite sort of traditional and sort of age old issues, aren't they, for teenagers? Yeah. But um, do you also find the pressure to sort of try and keep up with, with current trends with the teens? See, I'm super lucky because um, Harriet is so old fashioned and so geeky and so in her own little bubble and oblivious to what goes around her that her world I can sort of in a way block out trends a little bit which is really really great because obviously I am in my 30s but more importantly trends change and you know you get a lot of books which are very 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 you know topical and kind of current and then you read them 18 months later and you go oh my goodness what are they talking about so it's great because it becomes a lot more kind of in a way timeless and Harriet's obliviousness is part of her character so she likes her dinosaurs and she likes her historic, historical facts she's a big fan of the Tudors those things that really change <laughs> and but then obviously do keep an eye on the trends and keep an eye on the way they speak and when other characters are talking and when other things are happening Harriet can be slightly taken aback by things that are happening that are a bit more current it also sounds like you know she would definitely speak to some of the youth out there and I wonder if you ever get the opportunity to speak to some of the fans. Oh, yeah. Also, I mean, I've been on tour all week this week. Um, I haven't been home since Sunday because I've been touring and talking to readers. I go into schools quite a lot and, and do assemblies. Um, so I meet loads and loads of kids. And it's one of the joys, actually, is, is meeting the kids that, that are reading my books and seeing how they interact with it and seeing what a difference it makes. Because Harriet is geeky and her own person, but she slowly comes to terms with that and is slowly proud of, of who she is as opposed to ashamed of it. And having, having kids come up to me and say, you know, I was really, really anxious about the fact that I was different or I was you know insecure about the fact that I felt like I was geeky or not cool and now I feel much more confident or now I've made friends because of it or you know it's it's an amazing feeling to know that I've written something that may have made an impact on even just one person. Yeah, it's interesting that because I'm a fan of Dan Harmon's work who does community mm. and, and he's very much into that sort of uh, representing the geek culture as such. People seem to think that being a geek nowadays is cool, but there is a difference, isn't there, between that yeah. sort of put on an outfit to make yourself look like a geek and actually yeah. being what is a classic geek. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Geek Girl was never called Geek Girl when I wrote it and I started in 2008. So it was actually before I did three years before I even heard of Bing Bang, Big Bang Theory. So I didn't know that it was going to be like a big sort of zeitgeist, I guess. Um, yeah. But it was called The Metamorphosis of Harriet Manners. And it was always just about someone who genuinely just is passionate about life, about the things in it, about knowing Knowing, you know, curious, and in that curiosity and that passion are what really define geeks. I think that that's never going to. It might be trendy now, but it's never going to be not cool because because that's fascinating to be around. Pe being around passionate people who know and care about the world so much. That's I think an interesting person to be around. Definitely. And it also sounds like something that would translate very well onto the screen. Are there any plans to do anything like that? I hope so. We've been in talks for a while now, um, but it's just coming to the end of those talks. So I'm hoping that I'll have some kind of news soon. But it's a, it's a long and winding road for the uh, film and TV industry. <laughs> it's just about making sure it's the right thing. Um, I mean, obviously, I can't control whether it is out or not, but I can try and do my best. So it's just trying to make sure that it's something that feels like they get Harriet. Um, in the same way that when I sold the book to uh, my publishers, I felt like they got Harriet. And, and that has made a huge difference, I think, for me. Absolutely. Have you got any advice for anyone who's interested in maybe thinking about getting into writing? Yeah, of course. I mean, it kind of feels like being an athlete, you know, so you'd want to eat right. And in this case, that would mean reading books and it would mean reading as many different types of books as you can. Don't just eat like, you know, one type of book. Um, so <laughs> thrillers, adventures, romance, contemporary, dystopian, you know, everything that you can get your hands on. And then train so that means writing that means just writing anything that could use your voice different voices different types poetry diary stories whatever it is and then when you actually come to try and do a marathon be kind to yourself because it can be a really long and hard route and even professional authors get stuck and get disheartened and it takes too long or it's too difficult don't be hard on yourself if it takes longer and it's more difficult than you thought it would be because it is possible and you know I know so many authors and so somebody has to be those people <laughs> someone has to turn into <laughs> The, the, the writers that make the books. So, um, yeah, just go for it. Sponsoring Women Today. Citywing.com. For business or leisure flights.
You are listening to Women Today. It's just coming up to 20 minutes to three now. So our guest today is Dr. John. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Dr. John. You have several we times. Had, we did. There's lots of health stories in the news this week, which oh. we'll come to shortly. Mm. Uh, but first up, I thought we'd touch on this um, study we found that says that apparently one third of women have felt unable to discuss a health issue with their doctor in the past. Now, the top reasons for keeping quiet about health issues include being embarrassed, being concerned about being seen as overreacting, <clears throat> excuse me, feeling as though they wouldn't be taken seriously and not feeling understood. It was a study of 2,000 UK women conducted by the charity Ovarian Cancer Action uh, to mark Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Is this something that you see as being a problem? I think so. Um, I, I wonder whether it's quite as much of a problem as is portrayed. I worry slightly, and I may be completely wrong here, but I worry slightly that this survey has been done by a cancer organisation, and I wonder whether their sample of women, therefore, was um, completely neutral or whether actually it was skewed towards people who had had problems with gynaecological cancer. If that was the case, then I can sort of understand slightly more why there might be a reluctance. I think women, um, and indeed men, but I think perhaps women more, are often reluctant to discuss things uh, which are uh, very uh, scary for them or personal to them or to do with uh, women's health particularly um, with any GP. Actually, I was going to say male GPs, and I think that's certainly true, but, but any GP. I think if the survey is uh, from a completely neutral cohort of women I'm slightly sad by that I have mm. to say I am saddened by it and uh, I would like to think that most of my colleagues given somebody who is reluctant to to talk would simply try to be as non-judgmental and as uh, as receptive as they can be um, I don't think our job is to put up any sort of resistance to people coming to us with uh, problems you know at the end of the day if uh, I believe that a patient is worrying too much about their health or getting overly obsessed with it or uh, is anxious then I'll tell them that but I'll tell them that in a way that hopefully will be helpful for them um, I certainly don't uh, want ever to put people off from coming to see me much though uh, I'd like to have a rest from time to time you know our job is there is to be there and to be a, a resource for people who have the most difficult, the most intimate, the most embarrassing problems, you know, uh, and we see them all of the time. And, and I don't think any doctor should be putting up any resistance to that. So I'm slightly saddened and I hope it's wrong, but sadly, I suspect it's not. Mm. Do you think perhaps, especially on the island, there might be a worry that, oh, you don't want to go and see your GP because they might know you might know them personally or they might know of you more? I've only been here three years. When I worked in Shropshire, I was there for 25 years, and I knew a lot of my patients, and a lot of my patients were my friends. And I can understand that there are times where people who become very friendly with you will have a reluctance then to discuss some types of issues with you. That's the theory. Interestingly, the opposite was mainly true, and people would actually choose to come to see me if they were associated with me in, in, in uh, areas outside medicine because they trusted or because they felt that they could broach things that they might not be able to broach with a stranger. So maybe that's not true. Um, I certainly think for the island it is a smaller uh, uh, community and a closer community than perhaps would be typical in the UK and I can see that perhaps some people therefore be reluctant. But look, every practice on the island now has more than one doctor. You have the choice to be able to go and see the doctor of your choice. You even have the choice to be able to change practices and a lot of people don't realise how easy it is to change practices and I do say to people look if you're not happy with the service you have if you don't get on with if you don't trust if you don't feel you have a rapport with the doctor who you uh, end up going to see all the time go and find somebody else try try another doctor it's absolutely your right so to do you need to be able to trust the person who you're going to be speaking about some of the most difficult and uh, personal issues in your life with so for goodness sake find the right person Mm. It's interesting that one of those um, uh, areas there that was uh, seen as being an issue was women feeling like they were being seen to overreact. And I think that's quite concerning because I think a lot of us men and women tend to wait until the issue is quite serious or severe because we think, oh, well, if we go in, there's not much there, not much to see or not much to talk about, then, you know, we might be seen as overreacting, which is one yeah. of those things. People do apologise all the time to me coming in and saying, I'm so sorry to bother you, doctor. And I'm like, oh, dear, I'm, I'm, I'm worried you're going to call me a fraud. People do worry about that. And I say to them, look, I'd much prefer you to come to me and for me to tell you that it's a false alarm. And if you come to me in three weeks time and tell me, 
me that you've got something wrong and that's a false alarm too and then if you come to me again in a month later and do the same <laughs> then I might be having a word with you about why that is but I'll do it in a way that hopefully will help you I'm not going to to sort of make fun of you because of that but I might try and educate you that you might not see you need to see me as much as possible I'd much prefer it that way round than for women or anybody actually to be so unnerved by the idea of coming to see me that we miss something you know major uh, I mean breast lumps are the, are the absolutely typical thing women get terribly worried about bothering the doctor about breast lumps particularly if they've had them before I say look I never ever will tell you off for coming to see me about a breast lump even mm -hmm. if it's always always benign I'd much prefer that because if I can save one person from missing one breast lump that turns out to be malignant and there are 400 others that are benign well blow it that's 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 worthwhile from my point of view yeah so I suppose the thing is to try and build up a relationship with your doctor see if you're comfortable in being able to just talk to them about anything and everything that's As, the most important thing. yeah but then I, I guess if you're not unwell terribly often then it's quite difficult to build up a relationship really isn't it if you don't actually go see them very often yeah the other end of the spectrum is that there will be patients who come to see me and several of you are listening today and I'm going to say this to you specifically um, who will say I never come to see you and I build up and I wait until I've got a real list so here's 14 things uh, that I'm going to tell you about this morning I have 10 minutes to see you I'm not going to be able to deal with your 14 uh, strong list today so yeah it, that, there are sometimes uh, <laughs> problems at the other end of the spectrum yeah, so, so the study was quite interesting, actually. Um, well, I might post a link to it on our, our website a little bit later. It did also say that more than one quarter of women said they simply prioritised work over going to see a doctor with a health concern. And this, I can understand, more than a third of them said looking after their family was more important. Going yeah. to, that is very sad that they would feel that. Yeah. Actually, yes, I mean, one would naturally assume, wouldn't one, that that's a male thing and that they would think it's far too wimpish to go along and see the doctor and I mm. must get my work done and, uh, you know, do my, do my nine hours work today otherwise I get sacked. Um, yeah, poppycock and piffle and balderdash <laughs> is my answer to that. Love it. Now, a story that came up in the news today, actually, which I'm going to throw at you because it is an interesting one. Um, I will just read you the top line of this story. Too many children are being incorrectly diagnosed with asthma with inhalers being dispensed for no good reason and becoming almost fashion accessories. And that is from two specialists in the illness. What do you say to that, Dr John? Probably, and rather sadly, I suspect it's true. Mm. I think that um, there are complex reasons for it. I think that there is an expectation often uh, from parents, this is going to be controversial, and I shall expect lots of people to be ringing in now, but I think there is often an expectation from parents when they come with a sick child, uh, and I speak particularly with my meds hat on here, I think parents who are worried about children who are poorly at night, particularly who are poorly with bad breathing, which parents worry about more than perhaps almost anything else when they've got a small baby, um, will want something to go home with. And often they are very dissatisfied with the answer that the child has a cold. Uh, or has picked up a bit of a bug and is likely to be wheezy and coughing and sneezing for a little bit. They want something to go home with and sometimes it's easiest to give the parent an inhaler because it's something they can hold. Now that's controversial and I suspect there'll be specific doctors who will rail against that but I suspect statistically that it's true um, and I think we probably do overprescribe um, both antibiotics and inhalers. Um, asthma is becoming a little bit of a um, a trendy thing for children to uh, be diagnosed with at the moment. My personal view is that uh, any child under the age of about three, it's almost impossible to diagnose asthma in. Uh, and I would always call a child of that age a child with a wheeze or somebody who has a tendency to be wheezy when they get a cold. Sometimes inhalers are helpful in that sort of situation. The reliever inhalers that we all know about, the blue inhalers that, that we see, are often the best. But the difficulty here is that giving a child a steroid inhaler um, steroids stay in the body and they accumulate and we have to be very very careful about the amount that we give them during their childhood. Uh, we asked you earlier who you thought our studio guest might be being today. She is Claire Louise Cubbon and she sang a little excerpt from something. Can you just uh, put us at rest? What was the excerpt from and who were you being? It was from the film Mary Poppins and mm -hmm. I was indeed the lady herself. And we have had several texts, and thank you to all those people who uh, who guessed. Uh, the person who put their name on the text, Georgia at Mostly Manx, uh, she got it right, as did several other people. Thank you very much for that. So, can I call you Mary Poppins? You may, you may. Oh, I love it. You just look <laughs> fantastic. We've posted, have we put a picture up on our Facebook? We'll be putting pictures on our Facebook of uh, how fantastic Mary looks this afternoon. Uh, but first of all, I should ask you, because this is what we're talking about today, what is Isle of Characters? 
Isle of Characters is essentially a lookalikes agency and also tribute acts for the Isle of Man. Uh, so the the sky's the limit. The sky is your the, well, the limit, I suppose, is your imagination. So people are suggesting new things to me all the time: video game characters, movie characters, kids' TV program characters, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just so so exciting. I love it. It's such a great idea. How did it come about then? It all stemmed from a, a Facebook post, of all things, which I was tagged in. Somebody who isn't actually on, on Facebook required someone to be a Mary Poppins impersonator for her daughter's birthday. Uh, and uh, somebody thought I would be up to the job and tagged me. And I said, yes, absolutely, count me in, thinking that I'd have a month or two to prepare. And I actually had, I think, about five days, in which time I met with the mother of the the birthday girl-to-be and uh, did a few impressions for her, put her mind at ease, came up with some ideas of activities we could do for the birthday party. And then I gathered some uh, material from Bon Fabric and then hot-footed back to Peel. And I I live in Castletown, so it was something like Challenge Annika that I used to watch on TV. (laughs) There's another that. character I could have, um, and uh, yeah, had had a fantastic costume made, and uh, the, the rest is history, really. And then uh, I did the party, which, which was a huge, huge success, and I had a lovely review written by the mother, and uh, the guests all seemed really, really delighted. As did the parents. I think the parents were actually more in awe of me than the children were. Um, and uh, then I posted on Facebook that I would be taking bookings for children's parties, and uh, some someone who I'm friends with actually said oh I, I would love to get into something like this I would actually like to take a year and go and work for the big guys uh, in in France um, and uh, and I said well come and work for me I'm going to be holding auditions and she is now on the team she is now my uh, woodlands princess so I'll, I'll leave that up to your imagination to figure out who that is because of copyright so I am officially English nanny so you can't. So as as an impersonator, you're not allowed to use the names of the re- real characters. Is that right? No, no. And uh, for any of the um, adv- adv- advertising as well, we've we've just got to be so so careful. That's so quite interesting. We're all, yeah. we're all really generic characters. And do you find yourself now, because you mentioned earlier, as soon as you mentioned Annika Rice, you were saying, oh, that could be another one. Mm. Do you sort of see people in the street now and go, oh, you'd make a brilliant one of such and such? Yeah, there was actually, I actually contacted someone on Facebook because she'd posted on one of the groups of the ladies' clothes, shoes and accessories. And I thought, she looks just like someone I'd, I'd like to have. <laughs> so I messaged her and said, I hope you don't mind. This is what I do. And... Yeah, so uh, I am plucking up the courage to ask people. So if I do stop you in the street, please don't, please don't be afraid. I'm, I'm actually quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> so who have you got now? And I know obviously when you're doing your promotion and things, you can't use the names. But just, no. just for our listeners now, what kind of characters have you got on your books now? Okay, so we've got um, right, we've got a, a boy wizard and girl wizard, and we're currently looking for a red-headed wizard. So I'm sure you can figure out who that, who, who, who they are from a very famous uh, school where lots of owls deliver, deliver all the mail. Uh, princess wise I've got a yellow princess a woodlands princess a Celtic princess who is fantastic she's got the hair and everything she's wonderful Uh, a long-haired princess Uh, we are going to soon be having a toy spaceman and a toy cowboy uh, and superheroes, the black cape, the red cape, and uh, arachnid guy. Arachnid or, um, guy. I've come up with the brilliant. alias Tita Parkour because it's actually <laughs> a, a gentleman who is uh, like Will Sutton. He's he's very very accomplished at parkour, so he's very acrobatic and very impressive with his stunts and things. Um, and tribute act wise, so far we've got Blondie, uh, Marilyn Monroe, and Lady Gaga. So what do you have to do as an impersonator? You said obviously for your your first stint at it, you went. To a party did you i take it as mary poppins you could sing you yes. could do so but what what can you do as these other characters or you might just look like like if if you're as you mentioned there i can say it mm. harry potter yes. if you were doing some of those wizards what would you do right well um we don't just look like them that's the thing it's very much a, a, a multifaceted uh, ticking all of the boxes that we do if it if it is a character that sings in a movie we will sing and we will do our utmost to sing just like them mm-hmm. and carry off the voice to a t as well have the demeanor the body language the facial expressions the costumes are going to be exquisite uh, I, I know that there are people out there and in the UK who do something similar to what I'm doing but these are going to be it's not just going to be 
be the kind of thing you can buy online for a, for a hen night or something. They are going to be handmade uh, by my dressmaker on the island. I am actually looking for another dressmaker as well because I, I just have all these ideas and I think the workload is going to be too much for the lady I currently have. So if anybody would like to step forward, please let me know. I love it. <laughs> can you train yourself to do this then or is it just something, do you think it's, you, you just, I've always been a bit like this person and so you go and do it? I'd say a bit of both, to be honest. If you've got the natural raw talent to sing and act and to be a people person as well, because that's a huge element of it as well. You've got to be able to interact well with with people and children alike. Um, so it's it's just practice. I'd I'd say hammer hammer the likes of YouTube and uh, just study the character to the best of your ability and just practice in the car, in the shower, um, wherever you go. You know, just just get up on Snaefell and belt out the hills are alive with the sound of music. Or you, I bet you've done that. Yeah. I, I, I will be. I will be soon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier when we were chatting about it the lengths that some of your team are going to. You said some of them are learning magic. Is that right? Yes. Yes. The the wizard trio. Um, uh, certainly the girl and boy wizard who we already have. They are already learning magic in their in their own time, so that they can do that for the children at the parties. And they're also going to be learning something. They're going to be asking their science teacher at school. This is something wow. You know, with a wow factor that I can do. Um, to, to teach the children how to do at the party but then they can go back home and do it and make a mess there um, but it's so going to be there's going to be activities there's going to be they'd, they'd be colouring in for example with the wizard trio they'd be colouring in a dragon and that is when they would have their photograph taken with the characters because they will go around and speak to the children individually um, and it's, it's action songs as well getting everybody involved very much getting the parents involved as well because nine times out of ten the, child, the parents will stay with the children for the party mm-hmm. and you you can really bounce off them and try and try and work with them as well which is huge fun well i'm wondering if by the end of the show today we can all get involved in some sort of activity with you and do a video <laughs> on it which would be great fun so if someone wants to get involved with impersonating what would they do how would they get hold of you uh they can contact me on 332112 or by email which is isleofcharacters at gmail.com we are currently on facebook there's a page of isle of isle of characters as well so like us on there and share it i'll also update people on there as to when we're holding the next lot of auditions uh, I think the the, the the priority character wise or priorities character wise that we're looking for is uh, the snow queen yeah, the snow um, queen. <laughs> and I, I just posted yesterday that they were look that we're looking for uh, von Trapp children because we're going to be doing a, a sound of music tour oh, on the island which is, is going to is really gonna be really lovely yeah. women today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away. Our guest this afternoon teaching us Manx earlier on uh, at the start of the show there. It is Adrian Kane, Manx Language Development Officer. I'm just intrigued for those who haven't heard you before. What does your job actually entail? What does the role entail? Yeah, well, I work for an organisation called Culture Vannon, which is a charity um, which is partly funded by uh, the government or mainly funded through the, the lottery, really. Um, so I have a, a wide range of sort of... I mean, to put it down bring it down to a few things. I suppose it's to help people find out more about the language, encourage people to learn more about it, and then support those people who are learning. But uh, So I teach, I've got about eight, I teach about eight or nine classes a week. Uh, we uh, develop resources. We're working on a new course at the moment. I go into businesses. Um, you know, recently I've been, say, at Douglas Library doing sessions, local play group. Um, so a wide range of things, really, just to promote the language, let people know about it. Do a lot of um, sort of um, sort of press type stuff, talking to people off islands. Um, doing a interview uh, on Wednesday with uh, another guy who's there's quite a lot of press interest about the language really. So I do I deal with a lot of that when it comes in as well. So a wide range of things, but in a nutshell, encouraging people to find out about the language, encourage people and supporting people learning, and trying to bring on people to high levels of fluency as well. And you've had some great projects over the, the past few years. I mean, a lot of them linked to sort of online, Twitter mm, and things yeah. like that. Like you had the, was it a word a day or a phrase a we, day? We did a, well, yes, and during the um, Island of um, Culture celebrations, we did, well, we did a video a day. So we did 365 videos. Oh, they were funny, some of um, those. <laughs> so, yeah, we did a video a day that. But we also did this challenge where trying to get people to learn a thousand words during the year. We didn't quite get a thousand, but about 750 but um yeah the, the big project was um a video a day um so we had a wide range of people a lot of them young um just doing little phrases amongst them released those um 
uh, one a day. But we've got we're in the process, hopefully, doing more sort of film work and trying to engage young people with it as well, in particular, and a lot of young Manx speakers. So lots of um, really interesting. And it's a nice sort of community to be working with, I think. I think mm-hmm. that it's a community project as much as anything else. And just ordinary people from a wide range of backgrounds. I've got people in my classes from Czech Republic to Germany, um, Sweden, you know, or just want to find out a bit more about the language, really. That's brilliant because it, the, the island has become so diverse over the mm. years, hasn't it? And it's just great to know that, you know, that's been embraced from both sides. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. so what would be your hopes and, hopes and ambitions for the Manx language? Well, I, I just, you know, I think um, broadly speaking, it's just about trying to ensure that language has a, ro- and, and a role to play in Manx life in some shape or form. That it, and it's seen to be um, off value culturally, economically and sort of socially to the island, which I think it is. Um, and so it's about not just getting more people speaking it, which is clearly important, and supporting things like the Bun Skull and the work we do at Culture Van, but it's also having a more philosophical type approach that I suppose in some sense what the Isle of Man is about. You know, what's uh, some people will say to me, you know, what's the point of the Manx language? And my my, my usual starting point is what's the point of the Isle of Man, really? So you have to think <laughs> what, what's the Isle of Man exist for? And I think one of the things is to be culturally diverse and interesting and sort of exciting and culturally and artistically interesting and I think within that framework the language can play a really important role so it's just getting the lang- people to see that the language can play an important role artistically, culturally, socially and indeed economically for the island really. Mm, that's interesting, uh, economically how, how do you see it actually making a difference economically? Well and economically one there's a, there's a market um, for people to come and learn Manx people collect languages there's lots of people who speak Irish and Scott Scala could be interested in speaking Manx. We're, we're working on that at the moment. But also it's um, one of the things which differentiates the Isle of Man from other jurisdictions, you see. Um, it's one of the things which makes the Isle of Man different. And, you know, people come to the Isle of Man predominantly to work, I would say. But I think they stay for other reasons, because it's interesting, because it's different and it looks nice and, you know, it's a good quality life. So within that framework, the language plays a role because it does differentiate us. It does add to quality of life. It does say this isn't Jersey or Guernsey. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it isn't, um, you know, there's more to the Isle of Man than an offshore um, tax jurisdiction. You know, um, we have our own culture and identity and we have a, a right as well to our own economic system as well, really. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where it's like Wales, where it's because certainly even they even have sort of compulsory classes, I think, in Wales, don't they, of Max? Will we ever get to that point where it is spoken? Do you think quite fluidly around the island? Um, well, it, it's certainly. I mean, it's, I never compare the Isle of Man to other places. It's what's suitable for the Isle of Man. So the Isle of Man won't probably be like North Wales, but what we'd like it to be is just you know a, a confidence sort of community of Manx speakers who are accepted by the general community and also the general community see that, that Manx is playing a role in Ireland life really you know mm-hmm. um, and it just it doesn't you know um, we often said before I don't want you know I don't see the language as belonging to those people who can say called say Jew and Kakin or something like that from <laughs> Craig Niche. you don't have to be called Jew and Kakin <laughs> or you'll be terribly offended now <laughs> if there is a Jew and Kakin from Craig Niche. it's just it's open to anyone who wants to make the island their home really and but it is one of the things it's you know Manx is only spoken in the Isle of Man really you know it's something unique to the Isle of Man you say that <laughs> I uh, recently went across to to uh, Derry oh, in right. Northern Ireland yeah. to, and there was a big it was a big Celtic festival right, yeah. and someone came up to me they were from Ireland yeah. and they started speaking Manx to me oh, right, yeah. and I had no idea <laughs> what they were saying and I, I felt awful that I couldn't um, respond, you know. We'll sort it out. We'll sort it out. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, there is a growing number of people off off the island who who speak who speak Manx, you know, and we're on, you know, engage with them in Twitter, Facebook, and all, all sort of things. So there is, yeah, there is a growing interest, really. One of the things it mentions in your role is that part of your job is to raise the profile mm. of the language internationally. Now you kind of touched on that before, but how do you even do that? Well, you just, um, well, we, it's happening anyway because. The Bunskulls played a really important role at the Manx School in St John's. We get r- remarkable amounts, and this is the economic thing as well. Um, we, we, you know, a few weeks ago, we um, there's a big piece on Broadcasting House and Radio Four on s- Sunday morning about Manx and the Bunskull and revival, and that, that's you know really important. And again, it, it, 
you know, I used to live in London and most people's perceptions of the Isle of Man, one, they thought it was the Isle of Wight, yeah. you know, um, and secondly, TT races, cats, Norman wisdom, pretty much, <laughs> you know. Um, but if you're getting things out and broadcasting house, we had a massive article in The Guardian last year and um, BBC online and stuff like that. It's, it's really important, I think, for the Isle of Man's PR to sort of um, say there's more about us than what people's you know preconceptions and and their um, their misconceptions are really. So there, you know we we get a lot of P PR from newspapers and TV companies, National Geographic, who who are interested in the language really. That's their, mm -hmm. their thing, you know. And they find out um, even a couple of years ago, nothing happened. I was contacted by a big ad agency in San Francisco. They're interested in our, our, our app. We were talking about um, apps before, and so, you know, so um, there's a Learn Manx app, which is very good. And they'd contacted me. They were um, through the app, and they were quite keen to do a big advertising. It never happened, but the very fact that there's a, a really big. This is a, um, a advertising agency for Intel and eBay wanted to do a um, a big a um, ad on the language and the Isle of Man. So, you know, people do find out and they're interested in this uh -huh. sort of thing, really. There's, in some sense, a revival of interest in language is a positive news story for the Isle of Man. And, you know, I think places like this need positive news stories, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. From, a, from a young person's point of view, I've, uh, when I've been across and, and, and said that I'm from the Isle of Man and, you know, said, oh, I can do a little bit of singing in Manx, it, it really does <clears throat> make you stand out. And as you say, People are interested in it. They mm, they want yeah. to know more, and and then oh, can you just do a little bit? Yeah. So so you're totally right. The more it gets out there, the mm. the greater interest there'll be. Definitely. I'm intrigued to know now. After all of the work that you've been doing, and obviously we've been breeding Manx speakers through the Bunskull <laughs> and other places. Uh, how many people do you think are fluent now? Is there any way of gauging that? No. I mean, the last census actually didn't really ask the right question. They asked sort of. Um, um, they're sort of slightly different questions to the previous sensor, but anyway, but that it's difficult to gauge fluency because most loads of Manx speakers who I think are fluent would never say they're fluent. Um, but then that that begs the question: What does it mean to be fluent yeah, in a language? In any language. Which is really, which is an impossible question to answer, really. But you know, I spend a lot of time just speaking Manx with loads of adults and and young people, really. Mm. You know, and and a lot of them would probably say they're not fluent, but you know we just talk Manx all the time so they must be pretty fluent to me so fluency is, a, is because it's almost a qualitative thing is virtually impossible to achieve but all I can say is that the numbers of and young people who are um, very talented in Manx is growing at just um, one today who came um, was just back on the island from university ex Bunskull he's now doing linguistics and Chinese at university so wow. um, so I th think a lot of them will be um contribute hopefully to the Isle of Man and, and also um, yeah and contribute to what it means to, to live in the island. Great. I've heard that there are kind of lots of well not lots of different ways but there are different ways of saying certain words in the Manx language. Do you often have debates with other speakers of the <coughs> language? There's, there are dialectical differences they're not big though but yeah there are there was a, a difference between uh, how you would um, say words between the north and the south of the island which not surprisingly really um, in fact, going back to you talking about John Dogg a little while ago, um, when I used to teach at Ramsey Grammar School a number of years ago, and when I was talking to one of the teachers who'd worked there in the late 60s, early 70s, he said he could tell then if someone, if a child came from like Jerby or Sulby, wow. basically on the accents. Um, <laughs> that's gone really, but certainly in the language, people, you know, will pronounce things differently, but they're not, it's not enormous stuff. There's mm -hmm. only a sort of a, a certain a number of words which people do say differently. So speaking of taking it forward, you have come here today with a purpose, Adrian. You've come to tell us about something, a new online resource. What is it all well, about? Well, yes, it's, um, hopefully uh, we've been working with a company in North Wales and hopefully over the next um, over the next month we'll have a really, it's not quite ready yet, but it'll be, I'll come back and um, let you know more detail, but it'll be, um, I think it'll be a game changer in how people learn Manx, really. Um, it'll be available online, it'll be free, supported by Culture Vannin and it'll just add to the the number of resources available there's lots of online stuff um available to learn manx but um the new one i won't give too much away because it's um um it'll be more exciting when it's ready but it will be um available online and it will um i think people who learn through it will be um 
dumbstruck about how much Manx they can learn in a relatively short period of time. Wow, so yeah. it's not one of those things that you have to devote years of your life to necessarily. Well, to learn Manx, you do have to devote... You can't learn Manx in two weeks, oh, you know, sorry. Oh, you thinking in a show, you'd be done. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it does take a bit of time, but it, you don't have to be... You don't. I think it's a misnomer about learning languages. You don't have to be... I'm no good at particularly... I'm no good at languages, but I do speak Manx. You can learn Manx... And learning learning a language is just um, it's a memory game. It's a trick, basically. And if you know the the um, the sort of the game, how to play the game, you can learn another language. And you can and this 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 app is sort of a and effectively a bit of a bit of a game really. But it's done in a very interesting way. Uh, and also, you did mention that uh, there's some Manx words that you want to. Yeah, have yeah, us we're going to learn some Manx. No today. point coming in without. Learning you a bit of Manx. <laughs> I love that. Learning you some Manx. Some, learn us some Manx, then, Adrian. Okay. Well, you, this this is Manx you all know, so you, it's not going to learn anything new. So you, you know how to say good morning, don't you? Which is more and you know good afternoon, which is faster. So you've got three words there already. You know, mora means morning. Yeah. Faster means afternoon, and my means good. Good day. Good. Good. Excellent. Do you know what the um, how do you say black dog in Manx? More they, they do. do. Ah, more they do. So you know that the Manx word for a dog is more there, uh-huh. and Manx word for black is do. do. Okay. So what's a Manx word for good again? My. 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 How do you say dog? More there. More there. I nearly said uh. do. <laughs> <gasps> How do you say good dog? Oh, it's which way round it would be. More the my. More the my. my. So to say a good dog is more the my. Oh, he's good at this, isn't yeah. he? Oh, I'm going to be saying that to my dog more when I get my. home. More the my. <laughs> you heard the phrase sure radio van in, I would presume. Yes, yes. once or twice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so sure means this. Okay. This. Yeah. So this is Manx radio. Radio, yeah. So how yeah. do you say this is, a, this is a black dog? Sure, more they do. Uh, oh, you say, you're good, aren't uh, you? <laughs> how, do you say, how do you say this is a good dog? Sure, more than I. More than I, sure, more than I. Excellent. I'm going to be fluent by the end of the show. (laughs) 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 Do you know, uh, you heard the phrase tread the lure? Yes, once or twice. Okay. So, what does it mean? Well, it's time time enough. time enough. enough, But is that that the actual translation? Yeah, yeah, tread the lure. So, the Manx word for time is therefore tread. So, what does tread my mean? Good time. Good Good time. time. How would you say this is a good time? Short. Excellent. Um, Delua means enough. Yeah. So if you say sure Delua, this would mean sure enough. This this is enough. This is enough. This is enough. Maybe this is enough for Tyler. This is this. So this about that's about ten words. No problem. Which you already knew. We're well clever. Yeah, (laughs) you are. Yes, very impressive. Very impressive. We've done my. Yeah, you've done. (laughs) You have done my. My deliver, anyway. <laughs> My deliver. <laughs> Good enough. Thanks for listening to our best bits of the week. If you missed any of last week's programmes and would like to hear them in full, you can listen on demand at manxradio.com for seven days after broadcast. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at MR Women Today. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.